Last week we saw Moses had left Midian after 40 years of exile and had returned to Egypt with a command from the Lord to tell Pharaoh, let my people go to demand the release of the Hebrew slaves. And we've been looking at this, how God calls us and how each of us has an individual calling from the Lord, as well as callings that apply to all of us. There's a call to holiness. There's a call to evangelize. There's a call to love that we all have. And there's nothing more wonderful than knowing that you are in God's will. Nothing gives you more confidence than knowing what you've been asked to do is God's will. There's nothing more joyful than to know that God is pleased what you have done that day. If you've ever been on a missions trip and you spend the day out sharing the gospel in the streets, you can come home fully joyful knowing that God was pleased with that today. And nothing's more motivating than knowing that you're in God's will. Sometimes we have a hard time getting up in the morning and you might love your job, but at six in the morning you go, what's the point? <laughs> what's the point of it all? And I've learned not to trust any thought that comes to me before I've had my breakfast. But there's nothing more motivating than knowing this is going to have eternal value. This is going to last forever. The work that I'm going to do is going to be rewarded in heaven. There's nothing better than being in God's will. However, more often than not, when you step out to do what God's called you to do, whether that's something very specific, in my case, I was plant a church. In your case, I could be evangelized to that person you've been praying for. It could be starting something that isn't necessarily churchy, right? It could just be something secular that you're going to use for God's glory. Or it could be something that's less specific and more general about loving somebody. If I'm finally going to forgive that person or I'm finally going to start working on that marriage and not just let it fester. I'm finally going to start sticking up for my family and stop letting us get pushed around by somebody. More often than not, when you take that first step, things get worse before they get better. Can I get any amens on that? Anybody experienced that before? You take out a step of faith and the first thing that happens is you get slapped in the face. Maybe that's the second and third thing that happens too. That's the testing of your faith. And there's nothing that will make you question whether or not you're in the will of God more than when you step out to do the right thing and it goes badly. Sometimes we even start to blame ourselves like I did something wrong or it would have gone perfectly and smoothly. <laughs> that's not what scripture tells us. And this is exactly what's going to happen to Moses in this passage. When the opposition is stronger than you thought, when it's more painful than you thought, you need endurance, perseverance. It's amazing how often that characteristic is talked about in Scripture, especially the New Testament. Perseverance, the ability to just keep going, is valued in the Bible. And it's easy to get excited when something new is beginning, but when that newness wears off and now you're starting to struggle... Like when you see in Pilgrim's Progress, he leaves the city of destruction and the first place they hit is the slough of despond. They fall into a swamp and his partner goes back home with him. That's where a lot of people trip up, which is why we need perseverance. When Pharaoh sends us out to make bricks without straw instead of letting us go, we're in need of perseverance. So we're going to read the first five verses. This is going to have to go pretty quick to get through both chapters, but... That's what we're talking about tonight is perseverance. Verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, 
That's the first place in the Bible you see that phrase, thus says the Lord. Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. Well, that didn't go probably quite like he thought. You see it at the end. He says, now the people are many and you want to take them from their burdens. Remember, the whole reason for this, this oppression in the first place, the justification, was the Hebrews are growing numerous. We just got rid of these Hyksos kings, these Semitic ethnically kings that had taken over Egypt. We're not doing this again. So we're going to keep these people under our thumb so that they don't even have time to think about rebellion. And now Pharaoh starts to sniff rebellion in the air. So what does he do? He turns up the heat. He makes it worse. Moses come in and he said, let my people go. That famous phrase. And it's interesting because he first says in verse 1 that they may hold a feast to me. This is the word Chagag in Hebrew. It, it really means to take a pilgrimage. It's where the name Haggai comes from in your Bible. One who takes a pilgrimage. And it's also if you are familiar with this, where the Arabic word hajj or hajj comes from, which is what they call the pilgrimage to Mecca. Those languages are very closely related to one another. So this is not just we're going to go have a party, <laughs> but this is we're going to go and worship the Lord. And we talked about this. Why is he only asking for that? It's almost like he's giving Pharaoh an opportunity to respond to something easy before demonstrating, yeah, you wouldn't even let us go and all we wanted to do was go away for a few days. So far, so good. Moses has been obedient. Things have gone well. The people were ready for him. They celebrated his return. But there's a snag. Do you see what he says? He says, the Lord has said. Now remember, the Lord means I am, right? And when Moses heard the Lord say, I am who I am, Moses said, well, who am I to go and speak to Pharaoh? Pharaoh responds differently. He says, who is he? He says, I am. He says, who? I do not know the Lord, and I do not recognize the Lord. He refuses to release them. Get back to your burdens, he says. That's what the devil tells you when you try to break out of your bad habits and your sinful ways. Get back to your burdens. This initial failure, especially after a success, can be really disheartening to endure. When you feel like you're doing what God's told you to do and you have an initial success, Charles Spurgeon says the worst days in a pastor's life are after a failure or after a success because the enemy comes at you hard. And this is what happens when you decide, all right, I'm going to do what God's called me to do. I'm going to step out and finally start doing the right thing. You say, I'm going to go and I'm going to talk to that friend about Jesus. And it, it becomes a point of prayer and fasting for you for 10 days. And I'm going to talk to them. You're sweating and shaking. And you go to open up the conversation and they don't get mad. They just don't care. They don't want to talk about it. You've been thinking about it for weeks and they, I don't, I don't even want to talk about that. And all of a sudden, boom, it's over. 
and you feel silly. When you decide you want to start repairing your marriage, you want to start treating your wife better, you want to start acting like a couple ought to, and your wife laughs in your face. Oh, this happens. Guys go off to men's retreats, and they say, you know what? I have not been acting right. Our marriage is, is on the rocks, and we got to fix this. And the thought in your mind is, she's not going to listen. She's not going to want to hear any of this. And you say, no, I'm going to have faith that God's going to do this for me. And you go and you say, honey, I need to, I need to repent and, and say, I want to start doing this right. And she says, ha, likely. That is everything that you just were worried about happened in that moment. You say, all right, we're going to step out and, and we're going to buy that house. Or I'm going to step out and I'm going to, I'm going to start that business, whatever it is. And you get everything together and you're all ready and you let your boss know I'm not going to be here very long and you, you, don't get, you don't get approved for the loan. Or maybe you come down to plant a church in Alabama and your first big evangelistic outreach, nobody shows up. Oh, that hurts. All that hurts. Especially because you had, to, you had to take a big step of faith and it was hard for you to do it and you finally do it and nothing happened. 2 Kings 19, when the king of Assyria invaded Israel and Judah. They had conquered Israel, the northern kingdom, and they had conquered every other place in Judah except the capital, Jerusalem. And the king of Assyria sends a message to Hezekiah and he said, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you've heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction. Shall you be delivered? This is what the devil says. Don't, God tricked you. God tricked you. He told you he'd be with you, and you did what he said, and he wasn't there. Don't let God deceive you into thinking that if you hold on to this siege, that something's going to happen. And he goes on to list all these nations and all their gods that he had defeated. And that's, that's tough. Get back to your burdens. Very often the temptation is not to, not to quit in some catastrophic fashion, but just to get back to normal. All right, you know what? It wasn't ideal the way it was, but you know what? It was, it was working. Let's just get back to that. It's comfortable and it's easy. You felt special. You felt called. You were convinced you were gifted, but you step out and you didn't even have a glorious failure. You just feel small. You realize you're just like everybody else and there's nothing in fact special or divine about you. That's difficult, isn't it? And not only did Pharaoh reject them, he increases the workload of the Hebrews. Let's read verses 6 through 14. Talk more about this. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten 
and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Pharaoh increases their workload. Straw was used. They, they would make the bricks out of mud and they would let them harden in the sun. And, and straw would be mixed in with the mud because it would help the, the mud adhere better. It's similar to how we put rebar in the concrete to help it hold together better. It was needed. It was part of the, the, the formula, so to speak. But now he says, we're not going to bring you to the, the brick pits where there's mud and there's the straw ready for you to make the bricks. Now you can go get it yourself. And you can't come and pick it up from us. You can go find your own. And so it says they go out looking for stubble. Now, stubble is not the same thing as straw. Straw would have been the, the cut straw that they could have used and, and would have been a, a good adhesive for the bricks. Instead, stubble is the chaff. That's the stuff that would blow away in the wind. And if you try to use that, it will work, but it won't work as well. So not only are they having to spend extra time gathering the material, but each brick is less likely to hold together and succeed. So it's doubly difficult to finish what they were supposed to do every day. Increase the time and it increased the odds of failure and it led to a beating of these foremen. And like I said, initial failures are hard enough. But when you step out in faith, very often it gets worse first. Remember in Mark chapter 9, Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he came down and he saw the disciples and the Pharisees were arguing. And there was a demon-possessed boy that the disciples couldn't cast out. So Jesus says, bring him to me. It says in Mark 9.20, they brought the boy to Jesus. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Oh, it's just like that. You know, he was bad. But then when I brought him to Jesus, he got worse. And this is how the devil gets us. You try to repair a relationship, and all of a sudden the person doesn't say, I want to repair this too. They say, you know what, maybe we just shouldn't be around each other anymore. I've seen that happen, where a wife or husband will go to their spouse, and they've been living in a, in a tent situation for a long time, but one person says, I finally want to fix it, and that's the moment the other person chooses to say, I want a divorce where you say, we're going to pray for their sickness. And you pray, and the next day it gets worse. When you say, okay, you know what? We're going to stop being crooked at, at the job. We're going to stop fudging the numbers. We're going to start treating our customers right. And we're going to be an ethical company. And then all your, all your business dries up the next month. Maybe a worldwide pandemic strikes right when you're trying to step out and do something great. Or maybe you say, you know what, I'm going to finally start taking my walk with Jesus seriously. I'm going to be getting up every morning and reading that Bible. And every time you get up, now you just feel so emotionally attacked and anxious and depressed and stressed out. And Jesus always gets blamed for it. He says in verse 9, they will pay no regard to lying words. He says, I'll teach you to listen to prophets. Every time you listen to a prophet, your work gets harder. And this is how the devil will tell people. Every time you come to church, things get worse. Every time you try to pray, things get worse. And that's, I almost want to say it's not true, but the thing is, it is true. Because the enemy, the devil, will press you harder in those moments. 
This is why when you're praying for somebody who's, who's sick or, or is having some kind of physical affliction, I've learned that if you start praying, oh, my knee hurts, and you start praying for them, and they said, oh, you know, we got to stop. The second you started praying, my, my knee just, whoa, just got way worse. Like, all right, that, that sounds like affliction. That doesn't sound like how normal knees work. Knees don't know that you're praying. So why, that, that's a spiritual problem. That happens. It absolutely happens. And you start to say, blame God. You say, God, I did what you said. I went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And he said, no. And you know what else? No more straw to make your bricks. You're making straw without bricks. And these are acts of spiritual warfare. Because when you start shining the light in the darkness, it startles those that live in the darkness, doesn't it? It says in John chapter 1 or John chapter 3, they love the darkness rather than the light. They'd rather it be dark. And that goes for you too. You've got your own spiritual inertia where you're used to laying back and not doing anything. And then you try to step up. You ever feel like your, your spirit is fighting against you? Like I'm trying to stop cussing and now I've got more reason to be angry than ever before. You think that's an accident? Or whatever your situation is, it gets worse. Not only that, Let's read verses 15 to 21. Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The four men of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So they go to Pharaoh. They're trying to protest here. So we can't do this. This isn't possible. And Pharaoh probably said something like, well, you sounds like you got time to listen to Moses and Aaron. Well, that's time that could be used hunting for straw. You're idle. Now get back to work. And they come back out and they blame Moses. The Lord look on you and judge. I hope the Lord looks at what's going on and realizes that this is your fault and judges you for it, Moses. They're blaming him for provoking Pharaoh. Now, you see this sometimes where there's a terrible situation where somebody is controlling everybody else. You step in to, to fix it, and that person goes berserk. And instead of blaming that person for going berserk, you blame the person that provoked them. This is how bad children are parented sometimes. The, the problem is not that they freaked out. The problem is that you said something that made them freak out. The problem is not that Moses wants to set them free. The problem is that Pharaoh is an evil, oppressive dictator, yet they blame Moses. And they even invoke the name of the Lord. They make spiritual accusations against Moses because of their circumstances. We can handle failure. We can handle pressure. But when your own team is against you, it's hard to go on. If you've got a team with you, if you've got a husband with you, a wife, children, friends, comrades with you, you can go on. But when they turn against you, how are you supposed to keep going? I recently read this in, in a history book that in December 1776, 
which of course is right after the Declaration of Independence. This was during the, the defeat, after the defeat in New York, when the American army was driven out of New York by the British. And they were fleeing through New Jersey as winter was coming on. George Washington opened a letter from his adjutant general, Joseph Reed, who was in charge of the administration of the army and, and such things. Didn't realize that it was not intended for him. He opened it up. It was a letter between Joseph Reed and the second-in-command general, Charles Lee. And they were complaining about Washington and how he was indecisive and was going to lose them this war. And maybe they ought to go over his head and talk to Congress and get him removed. How'd you like that? You're in the middle of a, of a retreat. These men's lives are in your hands. You're worried. You're afraid. You open up this letter and you find out that the people that are closest to you are scheming behind your back to get rid of you and blaming you for it. The story goes, he returned it to the guy without comment. He just said, I accidentally opened this letter. I thought it was for me. Sorry. When your friends start to point out your flaws, you know, you step out and you try to fix something. And you, try to, you try to fix a messy situation with messy people. It might get a little messier before it gets better. But then people start to blame you for it. You know, if you weren't so fill in the blank, if it's just you and your temper. You know, you're so selfish. If you weren't so lazy, this wouldn't have happened in the first place. And what, what do those accusations do? I know I'm lazy. That's why I'm trying to do something about it. I know I'm angry. That's why I'm trying to get better. When your partner in ministry or business starts complaining and you show up every day and instead of being a, a person you're in the trenches with, they're a bigger problem than the problem you're trying to solve. Because they just complain and complain or they quit. You know, in my own context, you plant the church, people start leaving the church. It's very hard not to take that personally, huh? Even God had to tell Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. Or what about when you've got friends that are with you? We'll go with you, we'll do whatever you want, your wife even, your husband. We're going to do this, I know it's going to be hard, but we're all in. And then it gets hard and they say, actually, you know what, we're out. We quit. Oh, it's so difficult because now you're alone. How many times did Israel insist on going back to Egypt? Numbers 14, I'm not going to read this passage, but they get to the promised land. They're there and they send out the spies and they come back and the spies tell them it's full of giants. And they say, wouldn't it have been better just to die in Egypt or die in the wilderness? And they said, let's vote a new leader Kill Moses and go back to Egypt. And God had to step in with his Shekinah glory and protect Moses from his own people. And you talk about, talk about ungrateful, first of all. You were slaves there. I'd rather be there in slavery than here with you. That's a gut punch. When you're abandoned, when you're accused, and people start bringing God into it. It's not a matter of life is hard and they're not being respectful and situations just happen. They blame you and they bring God into it. It's because you don't know the voice of God. If you were a better leader, if you prayed more, if you hadn't done this and that, and God's going to judge you for this. You know what? I prayed and I have a peace about leaving and going away from you. And you know what? Actually going out and telling other people to stay away from you. Oh, that hurts. And this is exactly what happened to Moses. He didn't want to come. But God sent him out. He said, all right, burning bush, the name of God, we're going. The people are with me. Hooray, Pharaoh, let them go. No, work gets harder. And they said, why did you ever come back? Why couldn't you just stay out there? 
Yeah, we were slaves, but we kind of had a homeostasis thing going on here. You know, they left us alone. We did our work and we were able to go home and have lives. Now we don't even have time to do that. Thanks a lot, Moses. When you truly stand alone. Well, verse 22, Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Why did you ever send me? Have you ever felt that or said that or prayed that? God, you could have chosen anybody. Why did you pick me for this job? I could have been doing whatever you think about doing. You've not delivered your people at all. He's implicitly blaming the Lord here. He's got, this was your idea. You sent me here and you didn't do what you said you were going to do. And Moses had thin confidence to begin with. He was shaken. He was ready to give it all up. And let me tell you that the Lord sympathizes with this heart. Have you ever been unable to understand why things have panned out the way they did? This isn't fair. It's not right that things went this way. Even Jesus in Mark 15, 34, he quotes from Psalm 22, verse 1. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus said that on the cross. Do you consider that? God, why? You've abandoned me here. We say, well, didn't Jesus know he was going to be risen from the dead? Well, don't you know that the Lord's going to see you through? We still feel that way in the moment. The psalm goes on to express faith in the Lord, but you know it was written from a place of doubt and fear and despair. And God approves of that attitude as long as you take it in the right place. These are the nights where you're in anxious prayer. You can't sleep, so you get up and you try to pray, and you're trying to be all spiritual, but it starts turning into this, this anger this, this frustration, this emotion against God that eventually amounts to, why did you send me here? You haven't done what you said you were going to do. God gets that. Don't you know that God gets that and he doesn't hold that against you? Psalm 103 says the Lord knows your frame. He knows you're just made of dust. He pities you like a father pities his children. We've got to be able to acknowledge this. You can become fully convinced that it's your fault. This is really what it boils down to. I messed up. This is even worse, in my opinion. Worse than blaming God is when you start to blame yourself. And you say, well, I know God never fails, but we failed. So that's me. That's on me. I'm the terrible parent. I'm the terrible pastor or evangelist or co-worker. And you start to let go. Start to let go. Satan starts to pry those things out of your hand. The dream, that remember the vision we talked about that God gave Moses? He starts to, what do you need that for? You don't need that. You were fine. Go back to the way things were. You're calling. Were you really called or were you just enthusiastic and excited after a cool church meeting? All those hopes. All the plan that had you so revved up and you were telling people and you were, this is what God's going to do for me. And this is what the word says. So I'm finally going to start doing it. And it starts tomorrow. And then now you look at it and the thing just looks stupid. And what was I doing? What was I thinking with this? And the old way of doing things starts looking real comfortable. Oh yeah, we were slaves in Egypt. Do you remember the leeks and the onions that grew by the Nile River? Oh, it's delicious. Yeah, well, you know, it's, you know it snows manna bread every morning, right? 
Yeah, but I mean, one flavor for 40 years. I just wish, you know, and you can picture them like reminiscing with one another. Yeah, I would, just, I would go and I'd cut them down every morning. And this is when there was this the perfect temperature and the perfect time of year. And you'd grind it up and you'd make that onion leek soup and you, you'd dip the bread in it. Oh, I would, I would kill for some of that right now. Oh, just, you, ever, you ever feel like we should have just stayed? I don't want to say it out loud, but it's like, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's just as hard work as walking around the desert. Might as well work where you know where your food's going to come from. And when you look at that, we go, that's, that's ridiculous. It's foolish. But we start to feel the same way. You start to say things like, well, you know, yeah, that, that girlfriend and I had some real serious issues. But you know what? She was really nice to me sometimes. I know that guy abused me, but, you know, when, when he was calm and he wasn't drunk, he was sweet. <laughs> you ever had that conversation with a friend? You think about going back? Oh, I, I texted him again. You did What? Well, I just, I was lonely. And it's like, well, then, then be lonely for a minute. Don't do that. You've got to be able to go through this. And you listen, if you're there right now where the, your old sin, your old way of doing things starts to look real comfortable and real possible, know that you're not alone. Every one of us has felt that before. Even Moses, even Jesus on the cross. Why, Lord, Why? It's not a unique situation. The devil loves to convince us that our emotional problems, our spiritual you know, trials of the soul, our issues that we go through, that we're unique. And we're the only one that has ever been through this. And no one else has ever experienced it. But it's not true. And when you realize that other people have not only gone through it, but come out the other side and overcome, you realize that you can too. God's not afraid of your cries. And the good thing is that Moses is at least praying here. Prayer is the best thing in a situation like this. God wants you to talk it out. I don't know how respectful I'll be able to be. The Lord's like, don't worry about that. Just come talk to me. And Moses did. And the good news is the Lord's going to answer. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. (laughs) Watch this, Moses. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, which is, of course, the tetragram, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. God answers Moses' prayer, but he does not do anything more than repeat his previous instruction. All right, God, you got to step in and act. And God goes, no, keep going. Oh, that's hard. <laughs> Sometimes like, Lord, we need a miracle. God's like, no, what you need is perseverance. He repeats his promise. He repeats his name. 
says, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they knew me as El Shaddai, God Almighty. He says, but you know my name, Yahweh, the great I Am. He repeats the covenant he's made. He repeats his character, his love. I remember, I see you in slavery and I'm here to save you. And he says, Moses, get back out there. We look at bad circumstances and assume plans must change, but God does not change. And God called you and sent you knowing that this was going to happen. When your grand calling fails, you need to look to the Lord, not to the crashing waves around you. Matthew 14, Peter was walking on water and then he saw the waves and then he started to sink. He said, Lord, save me. And that's great that the Lord saved him, but it's like, don't look at that. Look at Jesus. Here's another example. In 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6, David and his mighty men had gone to battle. And while they were gone, another group came and stole all of their stuff and stole away all of their wives and all of their children. So they come back from the fight and everything is gone, enslaved and taken away. And they began to lament and weep. And in verse 6, it says, David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him. Because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. These were soldiers, man. They're not messing around. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. That is what you must learn to do, Christian, to strengthen yourself in the Lord. Yes, God has given us a community. He's given us the church and pastors and everything else. But you've got to know God. Don't be dependent on me or your home fellowship leader, or your wife, or your husband. You be dependent on God. You have a personal relationship with God. Because sometimes the people, as it says, will be broken in their spirit. Or with David, they were bitter in their spirit. And they just can't put themselves out there to hope one more time. You've got to be the one with faith. Dad, in your family, you've got to be the one who has faith to lead that family. To lead your wife. The pastor has to have faith when nobody else has faith. The king has to have faith and strength of character when no one else does. And you and your calling. Don't expect everybody else to get what you're trying to do because God called you to do it. And you've got to be the one who believes in it. Don't look for other people to be your gauge of how much faith you should have. Well, I think this is still going to work, but everybody else seems to think it's not, so I guess I'm wrong. No, Strengthen yourself in the Lord. And look to the same four things that that Moses looked at here. Let's run through these quickly. God's promise has not changed. He's already told us, I'm going to deliver you out of the land of Egypt. And this is our first thing. Number one, God's promise had not changed. And it hasn't changed for you either. God called you. He sent you out. And remember, this is either the specific thing he's called you to do. Ephesians 2.10, 1 Corinthians 7.17. Or it's a general thing which is to walk in sexual morality or to walk by faith or to love and forgive. God has told you to step out and do those things. He hasn't changed, but it didn't work. Well, that doesn't change what God said. He still called you. Number two, his name has not changed. He says, they knew me as El Shaddai. You know me as Yahweh. He is still the one who is. That means he is still the Lord over all. That means all that stuff that's around you is under his authority. And that has not changed. And Jesus Christ, the New Testament says, has been given the name above every name. It's all under his authority. 
Let's use the Great Commission as an example. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples. Lord, they don't want to be disciples. And they, and they said that we can't tell them what to do. And the, and the government says we're not allowed to preach. And Jesus says, but I'm the one with all authority. His covenant has not changed. He talked about the Abrahamic covenant. I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. In your case, you have a new covenant. Your soul has been saved. You're going to sit forever in heaven with the Lord Jesus. You're still saved by his grace. So it doesn't matter how much things rock around you. You're still headed for heaven. You can endure a bumpy ride, can't you? And number four, his love has not changed. He says, I still see you in your slavery. I'm still coming to save you. And God's on your team. God is with you. He's for you. Especially when you're trying to do the right thing. God will, God will stand with you as you walk through a mess that you made. But especially when you're stepping out to fix a, a mess because God has called you to, he's on your team. So when you start taking knocks, You've got to remember that you've got Jesus on your team to strengthen yourself in the Lord. When everything is shaken, you've got to look to the one who is unshakable. Because hear this now, God is not intimidated by the things that intimidate you. Well, I stepped out in faith and I was expecting to have all this and it's not there. I'm scared now. God goes, I'm not. That doesn't scare me. Well, Lord, it scares me. He goes, I know that. So why don't you trust me? Let me be brave for you. Don't, well, I, don't, I don't know if I have enough faith that it's all going to work out. So, well, don't have faith that it's going to work out. That's what the world does, right? They just have faith. Have faith. Keep the faith. I find it really funny that the world has, has taken that phrase, keep the faith, which is a very specific Christian referent about not denying Jesus, just to apply to whatever. Hey, don't, don't be, you know, it's like on Instagram or TikTok. Hey, just keep the faith, y'all, and don't forget to subscribe, right? It's like, what faith? You got to have hope. Hope in what? Well, it's all going to work out. But what if it doesn't? What if it doesn't? It's, it's real cute for you to say that in the wealthiest country in the whole world on your iPhone. You go tell somebody starving in the middle of Africa, hey, keep the faith, bruh. What's your faith in? My faith is in Jesus Christ. So it doesn't matter if I step out and have nothing. It doesn't matter if, let's use a personal example. I step out, I'm going to go plant a church and I end up driving a garbage truck for a year or more. You think I didn't have moments like this? Oh, I had moments like this. I can drive you to spots where I had moments like this. Lord, it's just not happening. And God goes, well, so what about that? Didn't I call you? Yeah, then keep going. I can't put my faith in. If I put my faith in this church, I show up on one Sunday, 60 people. Yeah, God is so good. Next week, 15 people. I must not be called to the ministry. That's not how it works. You trust the Lord that is not intimidated by those things because he's not shaken. That's what God does. He reminds Moses and says, go back and tell him. And they still didn't listen. So verse 10, so the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. He says, they didn't listen to you, go anyway. But Lord, last time I had like the support of the country and they were with me and the polls were good and now they hate me. And I went back and they said, you know what? We're done with you, Moses. Just go back to Midian. And the Lord goes, go anyway. But they don't want me speaking for them. I do. So you go speak to Pharaoh. Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I'm of uncircumcised lips. 
But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. If you've ever wondered where Isaiah got that phrase about having uncircumcised lips, it comes from this here. We've already talked about how Moses felt like he was not able to speak and, and probably felt that he was not part of the people, right? How can I speak for them? I'm not even really one of them. Moses is told to get back in the game again. He complains. He's afraid, but God doesn't change a thing. He just says, keep going. That's what we all got to do. You want to hear something? Don't spend your whole life waiting for circumstances to align perfectly before you step out in faith. If you wait for it all to align perfectly, it's never going to happen. You'll always be able to find one more thing that's not ready. It's sort of like when my wife and I got married. We were very young. Now I can say that. I didn't think I was then, but, you know, we're very young. And everybody was telling us, well, are you sure you're ready? Are you sure you don't want to do this? You don't want to do that? And I remember just thinking and talking to her. I was like, well, what else is it? What else is there? We can play this game forever. Yeah, if, I, if I need this much money, well, I'm going to have that much. And then I'm going to feel like I need this much money. And we just had to kind of do it. Well, let's just get married. And then we did and we, we sorted it out. Same things with having kids, right? You can wait forever to feel like you're ready and then you have a kid and you're, you know you weren't ready no matter what you were going to do, right? <laughs> Same thing with the Lord. You can't wait for this. What you need is not for everything to line up. You need perseverance. You need endurance. That's what the writer of the Hebrews told his audience in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 35 through 36. Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Man, I could just preach that phrase. Do not throw away your confidence. For you have need of a miracle. No, you have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Aside from saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'd say the most important Christian virtue is bullheaded perseverance. I'm not quitting no matter what. It does not matter what happens. I'm going to keep going. I don't care how many studies come down from Oxford disproving the Bible. I'm not quitting. I don't care what the laws are passed. I don't care what happens. I'm not changing. I'm going to keep following Jesus. Take my house, take my wife, take my kids. I'm still following Jesus. You can't break a person like that. It's the most important thing. And the Bible talks about it a lot. I read a book recently about testimonies of those that had, had cast out demons from people. And one of the things they all consistently said was, there was a moment in that process where I had zero emotional faith. Uh, there, there was no, yeah, God is awesome, we can do this. The enemy just suppressed that feeling in me, and I, I had to just choose, no, I believe this, and I'm going to keep going. And I love that picture. I have no personal experience of that, but it's like, that's life, man. When everything feels awful. That's why I feel so bad for people that have been exposed to this prosperity teaching. That if, you've, if you're walking with Jesus, everything will be gravy. Because life's not like that. So they spend their whole life either blaming God or blaming themselves. Instead, what I'm telling you is, you follow Jesus, you're entering a fight. You don't want to be the guy on the football team that's afraid to get out in the field and get his uniform dirty. You don't want to run in there and knock into people and get hit and get your nose bloodied and your legs are going to be sore and your knees aren't going to work right. Get back up and keep going. There are people that are more talented, more skilled, more 
able to preach, more able to handle administration, and, and maybe just better people to be around who will do no ministry for Jesus because they can't endure and keep going. There's a great quote from one of the commentators I read. This is Douglas Stewart. He's written a couple books you might have heard of, but check this out. God's timing only sometimes coincides with our expectations. And his idea of the hardships we need to go through only sometimes coincides with our idea of how much we can take. God's timing. All right, God's got to come in by this time or it's all going to fall apart. And then the Lord goes, really? I don't think so. I think you can last a lot longer than that. The hardships. I, I can't take any more than this. And God's like, yeah, you can. He's like a good coach. You know, the kid's trying to get the, the bar up. I can't take any more. He's like, I'm looking at you. Yeah, you can. I know what about to break looks like, and you're not there. And how about if I get over here and I start helping you? You can do a lot more if I'm on your team. That's what abide means, don't you know? Says, abide in Christ. What does that mean? Remain. Stay. Endure. Keep going is just the short version. Can you keep going with Jesus? You don't need to, you know, trod on the graves of your enemies and plant the flag. I've been a victorious Christian. Like, can you keep going? Can you keep going? That's all he's asking you to do. Through failure, through persecution, through abandonment or obscurity, mockery, even suffering. Romans 8, 17 says, if we suffer with him, we will be glorified with him. These things, failure, persecution, all that, they are not Marks of God changing his mind. They are obstacles from the enemy. When God wants to change his people's direction, he tells them. He doesn't say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to wreck their whole life so they know I don't like the way they're going. God doesn't do that. Don't put that on him. And don't let the fact that things aren't going very well be a sign from God that I'm not supposed to keep going. If money running out will prove to you that God doesn't want you to keep doing that, Satan will drain your bank account so fast, it'll make your head spin. Well, as long as I have enough time in the evening to work on it, then we'll do this. Satan's going to keep you so busy, you're going to wonder how you ever got anything done before. This happens when folks say, you know what, we're going to start going to church every week, twice a week. All of a sudden, that Monday, I guarantee you that boss is going to come in and say, I need you to work overtime for the next 10 years. Well, I guess I can't, I can't do that now. No, that's, that's just the first obstacle. So you know what, boss? I appreciate that, but no thank you because I, I'm committed to, committed to the Lord. I'm committed to my church. And they'll holler and scream and, and make you feel bad. But listen, I've had tons of jobs. And if they're not going to let you serve the Lord the way you know you're supposed to, get a new job. More often than not, it has nothing to do with they won't let me. It's just I don't want to have an uncomfortable conversation with my boss who depends on me. Apply that to however you like. Don't look at circumstances as signs that it's time to quit. Because most of the time, God just says, nothing's changed, keep going. Keep going. Well, verse 14 through 27 might feel like a weird detour, but it would have been important culturally, so let's go through this. These are the heads of their father's houses. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, 
Yemuel, Yamin, Ochad, Yachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the son of Levi, according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei, by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. There's a Bible name for you. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Yocheved, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zichri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Aminadab and the sister of Nashon. And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel. And she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. Weird spot for genealogy, maybe. But we don't do genealogy, so they all seem weird to us. It's almost like a station break, right? Like Moses comes and he tells Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says no. And then the people don't want him to, but God tells him to keep going. And then to be continued. Next week we fade in and with the genealogy. This, this mattered in this culture. These were real people. Their stories matter and we know their families. So it starts with Reuben, then it goes to Simeon, then it goes to Levi, the third son of, of Jacob, dives deeper, focusing, of course, on Moses and Aaron. I'm just going to go through this briefly. I've talked about it before. It's important to remember that the years in genealogies are sometimes abbreviated. So it'll say he was the son. Sometimes that will mean grandson. They use the term son and daughter a little more loosely than we did. Uh, for example, we have... Uh, genealogies in scripture where there's a generation or two added in between that's it's not making it wrong it's just saying this is how they did it you know i thought you were his son well i am his son well he's your great grandfather well yeah i'm still his son right his male descendant and that was how they would go through this and um yeah we saw amram he married yochaved his father's sister that's an example of was this strictly his aunt or step aunt as is more likely or was this maybe you know, a dis more distant cousin in some respect, but I'm not going to dive too far into that. Numbers 26, we believe, gives us the full version of this family tree, but this is sufficient to let us know who Moses and Aaron are. What's the lesson I get from this? Moses and Aaron were part of a great godly heritage. They were descended from heroes, and there were heroes that were going to descend from them. Phineas is going to be an awesome man of God when we get to his story. We all have a similar heritage. And what, what can motivate Moses to keep going? The fact that he was part of a story that had started long before him and was going to keep going long after he was gone. We ought to treasure our, our spiritual heritage and strive to leave a godly legacy. And this is different for each of us. You know, look at your own life. Who, who was your personal heritage? Who came before you? Whether that's a specific 
relative or whether that's just a friend of yours or somebody that discipled you when you were a kid or took you under your wing when your parents didn't want you there. I look at, at my family and I'm very blessed to know my personal heritage. I look back and I know that my ancestors way back in the day were crusaders. Misplaced zeal, but at least they were stepping out and doing what they thought was the right thing before God. They ended up getting run out of England because they were Puritans. And they weren't Anglican and they weren't going to worship that way, so they came to America. They were pacifists in the American Revolution. They refused to fight. And they ended up getting sentenced to hard labor for that. More recently, my family climbed out of poverty, climbed out of dysfunction because of Jesus Christ. I can look back on that and say, I'm part of a chain here. And God's using me to continue that. You can look at your own life and say, who came before you? Paul talks about, who taught this to you, Timothy? Let that motivate you to keep going. I mean, you can even look at your, your national legacy. You know, there's folks that make too much out of this, but, I mean, we always want to spend so much time looking at the negative side of our history. What about the positive side? You look at the fact that after our revolution, the Christians stood up and said, if we're making a new country, you need to make it legal for us to worship the Lord the way that our conscience dictates. And then they did, and here we are. Even the people that want to press it down now, they're having a real hard time of it, aren't they? We come from a history of people that were fighting to abolish and eventually succeeded in abolishing slavery. It's really unfortunate we spend so much time talking about we were the nation that had slavery instead of the nation that ended slavery. That's a godly heritage to have. You look at us, though. We stood up and we, we fought in, in World War I and World War II and liberated God's people. We've always historically risen to the challenge. So why can't we look at that and say, I'm in tough times, but there's always been tough times in America. And godly people have stood up and faced those tough times. So I'm not going to be intimidated by mine. And we can look at our spiritual heritage too. Look way back, my favorite guy, Athanasius, right? The last guy, the last guy willing to publicly say, no, Jesus Christ is the son of God, risen from the dead, our Savior. And the Lord brought it back from that. He was the fingernail God used to have hang on to the cliff before it all fell off. About Martin Luther, the whole medieval world was against him. And God used that stubborn, hard-headed man to break down the wall that was separating God and his people. And even Calvary Chapel, Chuck Smith who was living in the days of the hippie movement and the cultural revolution and Vietnam and terrible, perplexing times, and God worked a mighty revival through him. So why do we look at our terrible, perplexing times and think, I just want to get out of here? The Lord's like, no, I've raised you up for times like this. Hebrews 12.1 says, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You're not special. Everything you're going through has been gone through before. But then again, you're not special. That means everybody else has gone through the same things. If God used them, he can use you. You're not so rotten that God can't take something and use it in your life. God can use you as well as another. So don't break the chain. Don't drop the baton. Just keep going. We'll either be taken up to heaven or we'll live to hand it on to the next generation. And we've got to set a good example for them. Bringing it home here, verse 28. On that day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. 
Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I'm of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? One last little point here. Moses still had doubts. And so will you. It's okay. You don't need to know everything. You just need to know God and what he said and then go. That's the only question to really ask. Did God tell me to do this? Either in his word or through our own personal relationship? If the answer is yes, then just go. You don't need to know everything. Moses is about to see God's hand at work. If Moses had quit now, he would never have parted the Red Sea or ten plagues or manna or water from the rock or any of that. You've got to keep going. We all want to see miracles, but we never want to be in the place where we need a miracle. You've got to be willing to endure that time. You don't need all the answers. You just need perseverance to keep going. Moses doubted. Moses was afraid. Moses was alone, but he kept going. And that is an attitude that we all can emulate. I can't be like Moses. I can't be like Martin Luther. I can't be like Jesus. Well, can you keep going? Can you endure and persevere? Then you're just like them. Don't be shaken by failure. God saw all that and sent you out anyway, and things always get worse first. Just know that. Things will get worse first. I thought it was going to be difficult, but I know it's going to be this hard. Isn't that the way it goes? Life is more real than we could ever imagine, but it changes nothing. We're part of that long chain of grace. Won't you step up and say, I'm going to live up to the example that was set for me. Or set a new example and break that old chain that was holding you back. Take the time to know God, to confirm your calling, and let nothing intimidate you after that. Even when you would prefer to give up. There are some days you're like, I know it's what God told me to do, but I don't want to. Well, who cares? Do it anyway. Just keep going. In this day and age, we've got all the knowledge and all the money. And we might have faith too. But who's going to have perseverance? Because that's what's going to make all the difference.